How about your next patient? All right, so now we have a male, 53, who in 2007 was diagnosed with a T1 and 0M0 adenocarcinoma of the left lower lobe. Now, interestingly enough, at that time, prior to his surgery, and again, I had not met the patient before his surgery, he had complained of some occipital headache. And he was worked up with MRIs, and there were some changes seen in the skull in the occipital area, but there were very nonspecific changes. It was felt that this was really totally unrelated. He had nothing else going on in the rest of the body. How was the initial primary diagnosed or picked up? I think he actually had some cough and some respiratory symptoms, and somebody got a chest X-ray and found the lesion. Hmm. So he ended up having surgery, and he was pathologic T1N0M0. So clearly was not eligible for anything else and was really being followed up by his surgeon until three months later when his headaches worsened. He had significant increase in his headaches, still mainly concentrated in the occipital area, but really becoming so severe that he was really in tears. He was seen by the surgeon, and then another MRI was done. He was sent to me. The MRI now is showing significant changes in that lesion that was seen pre-op that was very concerning for possible metastatic disease. He had a PET scan that only lit up in that area and another smaller area in the right frontal skull. We referred the patient to radiation and then to neurosurgery, and after discussion, we've really decided that we had to have a biopsy because we don't really know what's going on, and he had an open biopsy of the skull, and that returned exactly the same as his lung cancer. So if you look back to his original diagnosis, Vince, what would you have told him his chance of recurrent disease would be? Without knowing about this other lesion? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He had how many nodes do we know? Do you remember, Raj? No, but I know, I mean, our surgeon did his surgery, so he usually does a big lymph node dissection. So, but he's stage... N0. So he's N0. Pathologic N0. So he's... Okay, so maybe this was stage... Maybe this was a stage 1A. Well, he was a 1A if you disregard the head. Yeah, so a guy like this, you know, depending on tumor size, and he had a full cancer operation, has somewhere between a... 60% 60% and 75% chance of being disease-free at five years. This is kind of weird, you know, coming from the perspective of, say, breast cancer, where patients with, you know, recurrence rates of 10% get chemo, such a different attitude. Of course, you don't have the kind of database that they have in breast cancer, but obviously this guy didn't get adjuvant therapy. Yeah, and of course, he did have stage 4 disease, essentially, presentation, Retrospect, retrospectively. Yeah. But I think a lot of us agree with you that the culture change in lung cancer will likely include revisiting our best patients who have 75% cure rates and seeing what we can do to get them to be 80, 85, or 90%. So what happened at that point once you had a diagnosis of metastatic disease? Once we had the diagnosis, because of the severe pain, he ended up receiving radiation therapy to the occipital skull lesion and a stereotactic to the right frontal skull. And he became completely pain-free. And then I decided to offer him systemic chemotherapy because even though there was no more measurable disease, this is a patient who has stage 4 disease who has an excellent performance status. So he was offered the chemotherapy with the carboplatin, docetaxel, and avastin. Completed the six cycles with excellent tolerance and is currently on maintenance avastin. Is doing extremely well. What went into your decision to use docetaxel as opposed to paclitaxel? I think maybe part of it is I'm more biased that I feel docetaxel may be more active than paclitaxel. If you look at the phosphorylation of BCL2, you know, there's argument that docetaxel is more potent to BCL2 phosphorylator. 
And second is really I've had more experience using docetaxel. I've always been a docetaxel user. What do we know about paclitaxel versus docetaxel, Vince, plus Bev? Well, we know that they've both been studied extensively with Bev. We know that absent Bev in the second-line setting, docetaxel certainly has a better track record. In the front line, they've been compared. They've been in the same trial in ECOG 1594 and several other studies, although there are some data to suggest perhaps indirectly that the docetaxel-containing regimen might be slightly better. I certainly don't think you're using inferior treatment. It might be marginally better treatment. Paclitaxel and Bev, we have a lot of data on from ECOG 4599. And docetaxel and Bev, we have data on from the randomized phase two of Olympta, Bev, docetaxel, Bev, and Erlotinib, Bev, that was done by Roy Herbst and colleagues. What do you think about the strategy? I mean, I guess you can't say he was really NED, but he didn't have measurable disease of, you know, using therapy at that point as opposed to, say, observation. Yeah, it's a great question. I think that in a patient who maybe had had asymptomatic stage 4 disease and you'd, say, taken out an adrenal metastasis, then expectant observation would be reasonable. But in this case, I certainly felt the same urge or understood Raj's recommendation because this guy just had crippling pain. And anything I could do, even if it weren't supported by level 1 evidence that might prevent that pain from coming back or slow its return, I was going to try. The other thing we talked about was the role of perhaps oledronic acid in this gentleman, either now or at some point in the future. And I can't recall. Is he the man? No, he had not received. He has not received. And we talked about it. My approach is I've really always used Zometa or zoledronic acid when there was diffuse metastatic disease. This is a patient who only had two lesions that were both treated. So this was the reason why I did not offer it up front. We talked about the possibility of maybe increased risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw with the combination of solidronic acid and bevacizumab. Hmm. I've that heard that one before. Yeah, I learned you know, that today. Mora Dickler, who's at Memorial with us, actually has been putting together a series of patients who'd had bevacizumab with a bisphosphonate who had developed osteonecrosis, and there were some features that suggested in those cases. A patient of mine with lung cancer included in that series. Were, were these mostly breasts? Or? Uh, well, I sent her a lung cancer patient who'd actually not had Zomato, who developed osteonecrosis. So One it Bev? occurred to me, yeah, that the Bev might be a contributor. Huh. Wow. I haven't heard that before. Interesting. What would you be thinking in terms of next steps with this man if he does develop progressive disease? Well, he's another guy, you know, who had surgery. So you look at this, we have a good list of patients who've had some tissue. I think you'll hear almost all these folks had tissue, which is the good news from this. And so he's somebody, of course, I'd want a genotype. He's only had one prior chemotherapy regimen. So I'd see if I got a hint from genotyping him, but assuming he didn't have an EGFR mutation or KRAS mutation, I would probably look at pemetrexate as a backbone. He was an adenocarcinoma, right? And the question comes in, again, whether we would consider continuing the bevacizumab. I think that's the big question, is what do you do with those patients who are doing very well on bevacizumab, not having hypertension, no proteinuria, no kidney failure, no bleeding? Particularly if they have a prolonged period of stable disease or non-progression. How long has he been on treatment now? Well, his diagnosis was almost a year ago, so he's been on treatment for about six months. Hmm. What about him personally, Vince? Any impressions or thoughts? My impression was he was a motivated guy. He was a together guy. I think it sounded like he had a good support system. And, you know, we tried to elicit the individual's views on continuation of some of these therapies rather than just imposing our will. And I think what we found in our limited series today was that 
most of these folks who seem to be doing okay, particularly those, say, on bevacizumab alone, were more than willing to continue it because what they had experienced from the symptoms of their cancer seemed to far outweigh what they were experiencing from the bevacizumab or other therapy that they were on at that time. 